to Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so uh, we are in week two now of your year two and uh, spending some more time uh, still in uh, Kings and Chronicles. So we get uh, the introduction of um, maybe a more well-known name of a prophet. Uh, Most of our prophets up till now are sort of these one-off side characters, but now we're about to hear um, one of the more well-known ones, particularly for us New Testament folks, uh, Mm -hmm. who uh, gets referenced a bit more, particularly tied into John the Baptist and then some yeah. time in Romans as well. And so uh, we'll pick up in Second Chronicles 15, uh, where we start hearing about Asa, who turns out to be one of the better kings that we are introduced to. Yeah, he's, it says his heart was wholly true to the Lord. And we see this because he made religious reforms and Israel had peace. So again, if you haven't learned it yet, how goes like the people go the same direction as the heart of their leader? I, there's a phrase about that that I can't think uh, of. Yeah, I don't know. But... Um, but we like Asa, and he actually kind of becomes a standard that future con- kings are considered faithful by, either faithful like Asa or disobedient like and, others. And, and there's a prophet here that gives them the, the, the kind of warning that it feels like has come up a few times where it's like, look, be careful. Don't be like those who came before mm. you. And, and Asa, at least initially, seems to be good with that. And yeah. sort of they it's almost foreshadowing, re- though. reestablished the covenant, uh, that, that um, the covenant of old, uh, mm. that there was that they're returning to the law, the teaching priest, the true God. Uh, it's coming back into the story. And then we do hear about sort of the end of Asa's story. And it's interesting because First Kings didn't include some of these details. But in this one, once again, um, he, he uh, pays off the Assyrians to come and attack the northern kingdom so they can kind of re- retake the, the road into Jerusalem. But um, it, it seems like, at least in the chronicler's mind, like this was the wrong move uh, and, and kind of condemns Asa for, for doing this act, for <clears throat> conscripting maybe with the northern kingdom or with uh, the Assyrians against the northern kingdom. Uh, and it doesn't it doesn't go well for him from that point. Yeah. I mean, we see here a really clear <clears throat> parallel of obedience with God and rest versus disobeying God and and war or struggle. And of course, this can be external, but it also can be internal. You know, in Christ, we are promised an easy yoke and a light burden. We're promised rest for our souls. But we become tormented and we become overwhelmed when we trust in things that are unsure or unstable or in people. And so Ace is a good picture of one who pictures, who gives us an understanding and idea of what it looks like to trust in God and find rest, but also to turn from trusting in God and find torment and struggle. And uh, so the the northern or the southern kingdom with Asa is um, having at least with him a pretty decent king. The the line is being preserved. The genealogy is continuing. But in the northern kingdom, which we're about to return back to, it was just chaos. Um, mm. And so Jeroboam is eventually followed um, by this or with Basha, who ultimately kind of wipes out uh, Jeroboam's family. Um, and Basha himself has his own idolatry that's just like Jeroboam's. And so, um, yeah, it's just it's just a mess of a yeah. northern kingdom. Um, and Basha eventually dies, and Ayla comes along. But he gets drunk one night, and the captain of his army kills him and kills all the males in his household and all of his friends as well. And so, um, yeah, like God said these things are going to happen, but, man, it is a mess of the northern kingdom. Right. From- you don't see God preserving a family line in the Northern Kingdom because there's not somebody from Judah there. And so these family lines are ended and everyone is just fighting for the throne because it's they don't have any descendants of David. 
and so Zimri, this, this sort of general that killed Ayla, um, he, he doesn't have a ton of followers per se. And so Omri, one of these other generals seems to raise up and, and decide, Hey, Zimri's not legit. He just decided to kill the King that was on the throne. And so, uh, he sort of has this coup against Zimri and he takes over, but not everybody's behind Omri and there's this group that's behind Tibni, but Omri ultimately wins that. And we hear Omri is really wicked as well. And so there's just a mess. There's different people taking the throne. It's not based upon genealogy. They seem to all still be practicing the, the idolatry and stuff that exists in the Northern kingdom until we get to Ahab, who is just the worst. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He becomes really kind of the most wicked of all the Kings we see. He does not even really pretend to follow Yahweh, but straight up worships Baal. He sacrificed his oldest and his youngest sons. Uh, He marries a woman who's going to play a big role in trying to wipe out uh, Yahweh from among Yahweh's people. Yep. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before, but yeah, Baal worship, uh, Asherah worship, uh, it, it's uh, some of the lowest of the low uh, in terms of um, sort of cultic worship. And um, and the Phoenician, or, or sort of the area that um, uh, Jezebel comes from, uh, had some of the, the worst practices. And so they would have these giant stone statues. I'll include some pictures, giant stone statues that were furnaces, and they would place babies on them as for child sacrifice. And there were all sorts of worship tied into Asherah and prostitution and rape and all these kind of things were, were pretty uh, regular as part of the practice, priestess sex and all the stuff going on. And so it all had to do with the harvest. And there's a longer story behind it. But um, yeah, it, it was just the the mess of the, the kind of cultish practices that were tied into that. And now there's a king on the throne in the Northern Kingdom who is welcoming all this in, practicing it in himself, likely... Um, influencing the rest of the Northern kingdom with it all. And so there's just a, a degradation, a degradation of the Imago Dei and the killing yeah. of the children, degradation of sexuality, all, all stuff that goes back to Genesis one. And, and so it's just a mess. Yeah. You see Satan using these false gods to come directly against uh, what God designed, which is life, um, it, unity, and even this idea of being fruitful and multiplying and stewarding the land, uh, they're starting, it's, the world is moving into chaos again, and Israel is moving into chaos because they have chosen to not submit to God's design and order, but to try to create their own. And it's just like, it's messy and it's wicked. Yeah. And, and we shouldn't discount that like, the initial connection between Israel and Sidon was was, was with uh, Solomon himself, who uh, basically mm-hmm. uh, brought in a bunch of resources, brought in a bunch of workers, all from Sidon. So at some point, that door was opened and uh, might even lead to, to the moment we have. And so um, we get introduced to Elijah, who comes and... Um, basically has this sort of moment of that, the fact that it's not going to rain for, for three years. And it's interesting because, um, the, the first statement, him saying that doesn't start with, and God told Elijah to go tell Ahab this or anything along those lines. He just kind of says it. And then after that, it says the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And, and so, um, it, it's possible to, to, to sort of think, well, maybe Elijah just knows the word of God well and knows the promises of God and actually is calling God to his promises. Deuteronomy 11 says this, take care lest you, your heart be deceived and you turn aside, serve other gods and worship them. And so like, this is exactly what's happening 
happening uh, right now in their time. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land and the Lord's giving you. And you shall therefore lay up your words of mine in your heart and in your soul, bind them on signs of your hand and they shall be in frontlets before your eyes. And so is Elijah just recalling this and being like, look, God, your promise is that when we start worshiping these these false gods, these these other gods, that you will shut up the heavens. And he's saying, look, God, do that. Do that now. Yeah, and something really interesting is like Chris just mentioned, Baal was in charge of rain. So if there was to be a drought, that was in direct conflict with Baal worship. And droughts kind of imply that Baal was dead. And so here, not only do we have God uh, working to turn the hearts of Israel back to himself, but he's also um, directly coming against the worship of Baal. Yeah, and and Elijah's this kind of fiery character. Like he seems so worked up and it, it leads him to some emotional highs, but also some emotional lows, but he just seems like ready and and just wants to do something and, and, and feels like he's all alone. And and maybe most of us probably know someone that's a little bit like this. They're just sort of that, that fiery person, but often they have sort of, um, uh, uh, collateral damage in their wake. And I think Elijah is a little bit of that person too. Like we're going to see all the people that are affected by this women and children and widows and stuff like that, that um, are tied into sort of Elijah's maybe calling uh, uh, um, of God towards his promises here. And so, um, and so yeah, we're going to watch that a little bit in Elijah's life. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, in some ways that can be encouraging because again, we're going to maybe take Elijah a little bit off of the pedestal, depending on the teachings he's experienced. And we don't do that to minimize the impact of Elijah, but we do it to maximize the goodness and faithfulness of God to use anybody. So yeah, I mean, Elijah is awesome, but he's not perfect. Nope. Uh, so that, that should be encouraging for us. Yeah. yeah. Elijah's not wrong in pointing out the idolatry of Israel, but he will be wrong about a few things as we go. And, and, and some of his like, woe is me or, um, kind of moments. It's like, come on, Elijah, like you're, you're losing the perspective here. You're only looking through your perspective. And so, um, we do, we do find the famine plays itself out across the nation. And we hear about this widow, like these are the people that, that tend in the narrative up to this point be some of the people that like God seems to have a particular care for. And yet we see a a widow here starving, struggling to survive, struggling to feed her child um, on her very last meal. And it's important. This is a Phoenician woman. This is in the city where Jezebel comes from. And, and so, um, but Elijah has been told like, look, go to this woman, she'll feed you. Um, And, and that's what he does. He goes and speaks to her and she doesn't seem to understand it, but she goes, moves forward by faith. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, Jesus references this in Luke four, he points out even to Israel, you know, hundreds of years later, that the person who was faithful and trusting God was not an Israelite. Mm -hmm. And Zarephath is actually in Jezebel's homeland, which is also really interesting. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's such, it, it almost feels like an indictment on the Israelites that like, the, the person who's recognizing Elijah's voice and responding to what Elijah has said is this woman. Yeah. It kind of feels like an old Testament version of the good Samaritan story. It's like the one who nobody wants to like look to towards the model of trust. And yet she's the one. Yeah. But her son does die from some sort of illness and, and Elijah resurrects him. She recognizes Elijah as a true prophet, sort of like this confirmation. He came, he spoke, he performed miracles and, and she, she responds to at least that. 
At least yeah. it's the, the, what the Elijah being the carrier of the true word of God. Yeah. And this is the first resurrection we see in the Bible. We don't have time to dive all the way into all the significance behind that, but don't forget it. Yeah. <laughs> so Elijah uh, is told that uh, to go back uh, and tell Ahab that it's going to rain. Uh, but it's important to note, that's like the only instructions he's given. So the whole section that you read about him having this competition with Baal's prophets, wasn't because God told him to go do that. He just told him to go back to Ahab and tell him it's good mm-hmm. rain's coming. Um, it's been three years. And so, um, but he couldn't, he runs into Obadiah along the way. Uh, and, uh, Obadiah has been hiding some pro- some priests, uh, and, um, and, and Obadiah is like, I, I don't really want to go speak to Ahab about this because he doesn't really like you, Elijah. Uh, and, uh, but Obadiah eventually comes around and does it. Yeah, I think just step back for a second and consider the perspective of Obadiah. So here he, you have Obadiah as a prophet of God and you have Elijah as a prophet of God. And so Elijah is like raising people from the dead and being fed by ravens by brooks. And then here you have Obadiah being faithful to God and he's hiding prophets in caves and trying to provide food for them and kind of always on the run from Ahab. And so we see these two men living totally different experiences, but both being faithful to God. One is seeing miraculous provision And the other one is maybe questioning even if God is going to intervene or not. And so it's good for us to remember that experiences of believers and faithful people will look different even at the same time or in the same circumstance. Mm -hmm. And and Ahab considers Elijah this troublemaker, but Elijah sort of like responds to him. It's like, no, your idolatry has caused all these troubles for you. Um, and, And so... Elijah comes along and turns this whole, it's going to rain thing into this giant contest. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, this is where I like the context. And this is sort of where I led you last week uh, with the things to look forward to. Elijah sets up this contest as if it's like Baal's home court advantage with all the Baal factors. It's like everything that could be Baal-ish is put into this contest. So it, it's on Baal's mountain. So this isn't in Jerusalem. This is where Baal is worshipped. It's uh, There's already an altar for Baal on the mountain. There's some broken down version of Yahweh worship there that, that Elijah's got to rebuild, but the altar to Baal's there. He gets a bull of all the animals he could choose. This is Baal's official formal animal that that's connected to Baal. He calls down lightning, which is Baal's weapon <laughs> of choice is lightning. It's all Baal stuff. And not only that, but like um, the idea of it's going to rain, like Baal is the God of rain, as Sarah has already said, like this whole contest is like on the, the Baal's turf. Like this is your God. These are all your factors. Let's see who really shows up. And, and so, yeah, it's all there. And there's a lot of sexuality tied into this too. Like how the, how long will you waver or, or go between these two opinions, whatever the, I forget what the SV says, the, the mm-hmm. word there is sort of the sexual dance. Like how long will you sort of entice uh, these two different opinions? And um, it's interesting because the language there is almost like Joshua, where it's like, choose you this day whom mm-hmm. you're going to serve. And and if you think back at the end of Joshua, every, all the Israelites, yeah, of course, we're going to serve Yahweh. And then right after that comes the book of Judges, which is clearly they did not. Um, and this time they're, they're silent. And, and I wonder if at this point they're like, hold on, like, let's not answer that question too quickly. Um, that's what it almost feels like in that moment, either that, or it's clear that they've been led astray. But um, yeah, there's just, there's trash talking by Elijah, even the idea that Baal's off relieving himself, even, even a little bit of that language can be connected to sexuality as well. Um, and so, and then the thing that Elijah does is pour out water on the altar. Now, if God's going to show up and make it rain after it's not rained in through three years and had lightning, like that would already be miraculous enough. So I don't think, uh, as some people teach, like 
Elijah's just pouring water to make it that much harder for fire to show up. Um, the, 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 the Jewish practice of, of the, the coming of the rains and the festival tied into the, the planting into uh, the beginning of um, sort of the, the rainy season and growth. Um, it's tied into Sukkot, the, the, the tabernacles, festival of booths. And what they would do is pour water on the altar. That was part of the main ceremony of that festival. And so uh, I think Elijah and, and any Jewish mind would probably think this way when he hears about Elijah pouring water onto the altar. Um, would be thinking about this festival, this sort of practice of, of going to Yahweh to, to, with thankfulness and saying like, God, but you are the bringer of rain and we trust you to do that. And so um, what happens? Yahweh is proven true and the yeah. Baal, Baal prophets are false. And he remains faithful to, I think one of the themes we'll see throughout this idea, like throughout the story of Elijah is this idea of there being a remnant and feeling yeah. alone, but not being fully alone. And that we see God coming down, not abandoning Israel, despite lots and lots of faithless people, including a wicked, faithless king. God preserves a remnant. Uh, lots of them are prophets hidden in caves. Yep. And he is faithful to show Israel he is still there and he has not forgotten them. Nope. So Elijah goes up and down Carmel, uh, Mount Carmel twice. Uh, and he's seen some clouds off in the distance. So this rain that, that God has promised is finally coming. And Elijah tells Ahab. Elijah was great. He doesn't go to Ahab and be like, told you so, and you need to die. Um, he's like, Ahab, look, Yahweh showed up. So go, take your chariot before the ground gets too muddy and get going to, to out of town. And uh, Elijah runs a half marathon to actually beat Ahab uh, there. And so, yeah, Elijah's held up as this model, but it's really his faith. He has this unabated faith that God's going to show up, um, which is, which is, um, which is significant. Like, this is where James picks it up. It's like, look, Elijah believed that God was going to do it and he did it like, it's, it's about God uh, following through on his promises more than even is Elijah. Elijah just trusts that God will do that. Yeah. And I mean, that passage in James, James chapter five, right before it talks about the prayer of a righteous person, his great power at its working or it's, it's effective. And you guys, we have the Holy Spirit within us. Elijah had a nature like ours, but he was righteous and had great power in his prayers because the Lord was working through him. And so we have those same prayers. We can pray in that same way with that same faith and confidence that Elijah did because we are favored by God. So step back for a second. What is God leading you to pray? pray for and believe him for. It may not be rain to relieve a drought, but where can we pray in righteous and effective ways because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, following in the steps of Elijah? Yep. And so let's jump to the New Testament where we jump into Romans 3 and uh, go through most of 5, um, or all of 5. And so um, we're jumping back. And, and let's remember, we spent the first two and a half chapters now um, dealing with um, Paul reminding people or, or kind of teaching them maybe for the first time, like, look, you're no amount of, of measuring sticks, whether the measure of man um, or the measure of all things is man, like, like the pagans would believe, or, or you Gentiles who think that following uh, this certain level of obedience will work, or you Jews who think because you have the law and you've been following the law that, that you have uh, a greater standing or closer to God or, or have your own righteousness. Like that is not where righteousness comes from. And, and, and now Paul's going to turn it and going, this is where righteousness comes from. Righteousness comes from God himself mm -hmm. and, and, and the law 
law and the prophets have been pointing towards it, but this righteousness has been made known. And now it's through Jesus Christ. Like that is where the righteousness comes from. Um, and, and so um, it's so interesting because even by verse 23, um, we love to quote part of that verse for all of a sudden to fall short of the glory of God. But for whatever reason, we leave out the rest of it, which is like, and, and are justified by the grace of gift, uh, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Jesus Christ. Like, Yes, all of sin to fall short of the glory of God, but the the best, the best part of that sentence, the, the greatest news of that sentence is, is right after that. And so um, Paul's pointing out, I think for these people, these hearers of like, look, like, yes, you are all equally on, on the same starting point, but this justification, this, this righteousness that comes from God himself, like you all have access to it. There's no special access. It all comes from faith. There's, there's no secret society. There's no, uh, already earned halfway point. Like you start from zero and then God gives you its fullness and revealed it through Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, we've read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible We know the laws. So imagine reading this or hearing this as a Jew. This is such a simple faith. It is the ultimate equalizer for Gentiles and Jews alike. But suddenly the the salvation is a free gift and it's based on faith. And I just can imagine like never getting tired of hearing the gospel as a Jew or as really anyone who's ever tried to work for salvation. And what does that mean for us to stop and remember how good it is that our gift of salvation is free? Yeah. And, and I think Paul has to deal with his probably more Jewish brethren than anybody else going, okay, like, well, then what's the point of the law? And and I think Paul's answers make it really hard like to understand the whole, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament kind of idea. Because Paul makes it quite clear that the law is not nullified or done away with. And, and, and he actually says we need to uphold the law. And so um, I think what Paul's doing, and I think he makes a similar argument in Galatians. Paul, Paul's argument in, in sort of understanding justification in Galatians is, is he goes, I understood that I needed justification because the law existed, because of the law. Like this law is there always to remind us. It's like God's measuring stick is there, and and but we struggle to ever measure up to God's measuring stick. So it's there to remind us that we need to go back to the, the fact that we're justified or righteousness comes by faith and not by our works. And so um, it's like the cyclical argument of what the law's purpose is, is, is to constantly keep us pointing back. Now the measurement stick's still there. So by faith, now we can push forward and try to live like it. But all of our struggles to ever live up to God's law, the up to the law itself is just to keep us in that reminder of, of that righteousness comes by faith and not mm-hmm. by kind of living up to that. So that way we have nothing to boast in. We're all on the yeah. same level fit playing field. And so uh, I believe that's really where Paul's after with this teaching on the law. Yeah. And then he goes to the root, their forefather, the patriarch, Abraham, the untouchable and points out that even he didn't earn anything from God. Yeah, and, and Paul starts talking about wages and work and stuff like that, and, and he's really unpacking this whole idea. So, like, if you work, then you get paid a wage. But if Abraham worked for his justification, they would have earned it. There's stuff to boast in. He could have said, like, look what I've done. Um, and, and so uh, w- I think Paul's going to wrap up this whole idea of wage and, 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 and work as we go over the next couple chapters. But I think he's really unpacking this whole idea. So 
Abraham had this promise, this, this promise of faith, and it, and it came before he was ever circumcised. It came before the law. It came before all those things. And so um, it was simply by believing in God's promises that, that Abraham was considered a, a child of God under this covenant. And, and so Paul's making this argument towards the Gentiles um, and the Jews together to say, like, look, we are under the 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 covenantal umbrella of Abraham. So like, yes, we, there's a law for the Jews and stuff like that. And there's a place for that. But what, what we are as, as followers of Yahweh is are are only because of faith. And that is it alone. This isn't a Jewish thing. This isn't an insider thing. It is something that's only there because of faith. And so I think Paul unpacks that for them to, and it's this big theological idea, but that uh, they would fall under um, this umbrella and Abraham, the father of many nations, like that is truly coming to fruition now because of the work of Jesus, but, but, but moving forward um, because of faith, not because everybody's becoming more Jewish. It, it was always this Abrahamic idea. Mm. Yeah. And so if this righteousness that comes from Jesus, revealed in Jesus, comes by faith, the faith alone, then then how freeing is that? I think that's where Paul gets next, where it's like, you have a God who so made a way for you to be just declared righteous. It has nothing to do with your work, nothing to do with what you bring to the table. And, and so there's peace and hope to be had in that. Like, how peaceful is it that you can't earn this? And so I think that helps Paul get into this next conversation about suffering. So it's like, you don't have to wonder, is God mad at me? Is that why I'm suffering? Am, am I failing him? Is he disappointed all the time? Is his arms crossed and stuff like that? No, like, you don't have to run that rat race of earning your own righteousness and trying to measure up. Like, so now, like, when you suffer, when all these things come to you, you can sit at them and go, these are the hands of a God. These My suffering is in the hands of a God who has already redeemed me. And, and so I could see suffering and, and it could produce character in me and it could produce endurance and, and, and to be able to see that as sanctification and not punishment per se. And so, um, yeah, so like we can rest in God's love in the midst of our suffering. And so that's where really Paul starts getting to with, with the love of God in this, all this text here. Yeah, it's a good few verses to remember. And also remember, especially as you know, when we're recording this, we're still uh, walking through a pandemic that suffering is not wasted for those of us who are in Christ. It all counts for something. If nothing else, it's conforming us to the image of Christ. It produces endurance, which produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us. And then Paul also moves into these really cool affirmations that all have the word we in them. We are justified by faith. We have peace with God. We have obtained access by faith to God's grace. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We get to do all of these things because Christ has gone first and done it for us. Yeah. And Paul starts making some juxtaposition arguments, like the sort of, um, if this is true, how much more is this thing? And if this is there, how much more is this thing? And so um, he's going to, he's going to get into that. He's going to do good things. Sometimes he'll use even bad things. Um, But the first one is like, well, if we're justifying that, like how much more then are we like saved from the wrath of God? Like not, not only has he made us right, but like that wrath that's coming, like, how great is it that we don't have that if we've been reconciled to him? How much more is he providing salvation to us? And so all these sort of juxtaposition, and I know some of those are, are big theological terms, but um, just Paul sort of creating these compare and contrasting. And he keeps going with this much more argument. He actually gets into this whole conversation about just how 
awful sin is and how pervasive it is. And it rained from Adam to Moses. And it was even spelled out more in the law because that's what the law helped do is expose just how bad sin really was. And and even if you didn't even sin like Adam, so like say you're a Gentile, you didn't even have even one command from God, like you've still seen sin play itself out and you've seen death. And so Paul spends this moment kind of talking about the pervasiveness of sin. And then he goes, gosh, how much better is the gift? How much more is the gift than the trespass? And so he just made this huge big deal as trying to paint just the enormity of sin and its effects. And he's like, and how much better is the grace of Jesus than that? Mm. And so... I love Paul doing that sort of, sort of like, I think sometimes particularly in reform circles, we look like so much on like original sin and, and why we're so corrupt and stuff like that. But if it doesn't lead you to this like stirring of going, Oh, how much better than yeah. is the grace of Jesus? Like your sin's a big deal. Yes. But the great, the gift of grace from Jesus is so much better than that. Like that's where it should lead us just to find the sweetness in, in what Jesus did. And like the more, um, the greater our sin, uh, how much deeper, uh, whatever, however the song lyric goes, uh, my sin runs deep, but his love runs deeper. Like that is where we should end up uh, as, as we sort of contemplate this. And that's what Paul's after. How much more are these things? Yeah. I think so often we don't, we don't want to sin and maybe, and some of it's probably because we don't want to sin against God, but I think a lot of it may be because we don't want to acknowledge or confront the fact that we are sinful people. Uh, no matter how long I've been a Christian, it's still hard to come to terms with my sin. But when we understand more fully how sinful we truly are, then we can also more fully understand what Eugene Peterson calls the for- aggressive forgiveness that we call grace. So spend time. Think on your sin individually and think on this representation of Adam as a sin and how much we need that good gift of grace. And then the grace will taste even sweeter to you as you think about what you really need to be saved from. Yeah. So Psalm 143. Um, I like that prayer. Teach me to do your will for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Uh, This gives us hope when we totally surrender to God. God is the one who satisfies our thirst. We trust in him. He overwhelms us with his steadfast love. And out of that will flow this prayer that wants to follow him no matter what. Yeah, it seems like the psalmist is, is very uh, aware of his own struggles, but but he he's good. He sort of like remembers what God has done in the past. There's definitely like God, you've done this before, and so I, I have hope that you'll do it again and 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 restore me with a desire to walk in your ways and things like that. And so, um, yeah, I, I mean, the psalmists are often in that mindset, but but sometimes I, I think we we see only our current reality we're kind of existential and the psalmists give us really good prayer sometimes to go okay like god you've been there in the past around these things like yeah i'm struggling right now but like i've struggled in the past before and god you brought me out of that and and sort of that hopefulness that that these psalmists often have of like god you've delivered your people before you've delivered me in my past so whatever the struggle is i'm going through right now god i i know you're gonna still be faithful in Proverbs 19, uh, it's funny even reading through some of these Proverbs because I'm like, what do we talk about? Because there's like 20 different things the, Proverbs, the, the writer of Proverbs covered in this chapter. Um, a lot about generosity, about uh, not seeking wealth, things like that, nagging, uh, using your tongue well, not being lazy, not being angered. Um, yeah, so there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, the, the verse that stood out to me was uh, verse 24, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. And it's about lazy 
craziness, but it makes you just think about consumerism. Uh, these are the people who buy food and then throw it away because they don't eat it or who have closets full of clothes with tags still on them. Consumerism and entitlement is just a really core idol and sin in our culture. And so let's not neglect to appreciate the value and value God's gifts to us and not take them for granted. Yeah. So next week, what should we look out for? So pay attention to Elijah, kind of similar to what we talked about. He's not perfect. Um, And pay attention to the circumstances when he does seem to be the most discouraged. What can we learn about some of that in our own lives? And then in the New Testament, when you get to Romans 8, Romans 8 is one of the most well-known chapters in the Bible, but consider it in the context of chapters 1 through 7. So before you read it, like, see if you can summarize in a few sentences, you know, everything we've read through the first seven chapters of Simple Romans. Simple enough. I know. But how does the background of what Paul covered in Romans change or impact your perspective on Romans 8? Yeah. Uh, and so for me, I think sometimes when we think of prophets, particularly in the Old Testament, we, we think of these people who are like just calling out the idolatry and and the Baal worship and Asherah worship. And we certainly saw that in Elijah this week. Um, but as you continue to read, start seeing, are, is, are, the, are they only calling out idolatry or are they starting to call out things like economic or social injustice and some of those things as well, because we're going to start seeing it. We're going to see it. I think next week, we're certainly going to see that in the actual prophetic books. And and I think it's important because I think sometimes we, we create like this finite idea of the idols only dealing with the, the like, religious idolatry but at the same time the idols or the prophets uh, also deal with um, some of the practices uh, particularly amongst the leadership as well uh, and then in the New Testament Paul uh, is going to keep going with comparing and contrasting which he's already started into and so keep a mental note as you read sort of the the almost like one column versus the other column or the pros and cons or however you want to think about it so like he's going to compare death and life he's going to compare slavery to sin versus slavery to righteousness he's going to compare the law versus life and and so um, he's going to keep getting into this this little divide. And, and I think it's important to sort of go, okay, over in this column are these arguments, yet over here is another, uh, are these arguments. And so um, I think it'll help you parse through as Paul read, as Paul writes, or we read Paul's writings. So that's it for this week. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.